Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to continue walking verse by verse through this book of uh, Nehemiah. And uh, looking here at the Jewish people, post-exiles, they're coming back into the promised land, reestablishing worship. They built the temple uh, through Ezra and his leadership. Now with Nehemiah coming to the city of Jerusalem as the governor of the province of Judah, he has rebuilt the walls and is trying and working to reestablish a spiritual community. And so we're seeing this, this renewal take place. And last week we talked as we moved into this chapter and we began this discussion of, uh, of the fact that God has spoken, that we have a word from the God of all creation, the one true and living God. He has spoken. We see here from the opening page of creation all the way to the concluding promise of the return of Christ, the Bible, and as such the Christian faith concludes that God has indeed spoken, and not only has He spoken, He continues to speak even to this day. See, the Bible that's in your hands this morning, if, I, if you just took it and you opened up to the book of Nehemiah and you found your place there, that Bible that's in your hand is an inspired book. It's unlike any other book that's ever been written. It is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. Many writers contributed to its composition over a span of some 1,500 years, but it only has one author, and that author is the Lord God Almighty. You see, Paul said it this way, look at the screen there in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul said all Scripture, that is Genesis to Revelation, all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God, that the woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. All Scripture is breathed, inspired by God. As Peter said it this way, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke spoke, Peter says, from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, the book that you have before you and all 66 books that it contains, they're not the, they're, they're not the creation of a human. They're not the, the creation and the creativity of some man or woman from history gone by that came up with a good idea and submitted it for publication. That's not what the Bible is. It is the very Word of God given to us. That was a very good place for you to affirm the infallibility of the Word of God. But you missed your moment, we'll move on. You see, through this inspired Word, God has revealed truth. God has revealed truth to us. We could not have come up with this on our own. Sometimes uh, people who would, who would criticize the Bible and they would say it's, it's nothing but the work of man. I want you to know this morning that there's no way on heaven's green earth that we as human beings could come up with the beauty that's found in the story written in this word. There's no way that we could come up with this on our own. The nature of man leads us, as Romans 1 tells us, to suppress the truth that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. See, the, the, the wickedness and the sinfulness that we all carry within us as a human, a fallen person, it leads us to always reject God, always to pursue ourselves or something else. We could not have fitted together the prophecies or designed something so wondrous as grace. The only religion in the world that declares that we can do nothing to help ourselves, but we can only look to a gracious and benevolent God is the Christian 
version or the Christian faith that we find here in the Word of God. Every other religion tells you that you must do something to fix yourself. You must do something to earn the favor of a God. But it's the Christian message found in the Word of God, the Bible, that says we can do nothing to fix ourselves, but God has done everything to fix us. We've sung about it this morning. We've sung about the power of the cross and the blood of Jesus and how it speaks for you and for me. You see, we don't go before God with our own good intentions. We don't come before God with our good works and say, I hope it's enough. We come before the Lord as a sinner in his or her shame, and we say, Jesus, we know you are good enough. We know that we are not good enough and so we fall down on the foot of the cross and we lay ourselves before the grace of God and we know you have spoken for us that's what the word of God declares and so we don't come up with this as human beings we don't we haven't designed this or created this it takes revelation for us to see to see this truth and to have this truth and the Bible is God's revelation to us Christianity as well as Judaism are based on revelation. Think you back with me. God, it comes in the form of a burning bush, and he's speaking there to Moses on the backside of that mountain. And Moses sees this wonderful thing. He comes over and to see closer what's going on and how this bush is not consumed. And God begins to speak to Moses, and he says, Take your sandals off from your feet, for the place that you're standing is holy ground. And then from there, we see this movement in Moses' life where God begins to speak truth to him, but not just to him. And not just for him, it's for all of us. God calls him up on Mount Sinai. And there on the mountain, God gives him the law of God, the the word of God for his people. God reveals himself. Several hundred, or I should say a few thousand years later, God comes down in the person of Jesus Christ. And for all of the world, he reveals to us what salvation is is. He gives us hope because of the blood shed upon the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, reveals to us who God is. You see, Christianity and Judaism are based on revelation. Our faith is grounded in the revelation of God. And so what is revelation? It's simply the unveiling of that which has been hidden. It is God pulling aside the curtain. It's Him sweeping aside the clutter. It's Him opening the door of understanding and truth. And his clearest revelations to us are found in creation, in Scripture, and in Christ. You see, we can know that there is a God out there by simply walking outside and observing creation. We can know there is a God by simply looking at the intricacies of our own makeup. How we are wonderfully made and fitted together. There's no way that random chance could have ever brought all of this into existence that we find in creation. God has created. And so that, that, that screams the fact that God has revealed himself. Scripture has been given to us as God has spoken through his prophets. And it tells us that God has spoken. And we see it most clearly in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. As Jesus come, came as the Logos, the living word of God, to reveal God to us. The result of inspiration and revelation is that the Bible has authority for all of life. So we shouldn't just marvel with the fact that God has spoken and given us his word. We also must submit ourselves under it as it is our authority. It's the only rule of faith and practice in our life. It is God's inspired, revealed, and thus authoritative word for us. 
Fortunately today and all throughout uh, the history of the world, many people, while finding in this book something interesting, they choose to refuse to submit to its authority. But we look at the life of Jesus and we see Jesus was thoroughly committed to the authority of Scripture. You say, how could he be committed to the authority of Scripture? He's God himself. Yeah, he spoke that word. Therefore, he's going to live by that word. And every step of his life, Jesus was committed to the authority of the word of God. He obeyed it in his every move. And thus today, he is our example for living. And so as followers of Christ, here's a statement we said last week. We believe that the veracity of God's word is the center around which life arranges itself. Your life and my life ought to be arranged around the veracity of the word of God, the supremacy of the word of God, the authority of the word of God in our life. We must arrange our lives around it. So far in our study here in Nehemiah, we have seen in these first seven chapters, Nehemiah and his leadership. We've seen his ambition was not simply to reconstruct the city's defenses, but what he's working here to do, what his ambition is to do, is to revitalize a spiritual community. He's not seeking to simply resurrect a religious community where they go through religious motions. No, he desired to see his countrymen experience a spiritual renewal in their lives. He understood what led them into exile to begin with. And now as they're coming back through the graciousness of God, he wants to renew their hearts spiritually. He quickly began to discover that reforming a community is a much more exacting task than restoring its walls. But he understood that the only way for them to experience this spiritual renewal was for them to return to God's word. Look at this statement. Spiritual renewal and vitality come through God's word, which forms the believer. If you want to understand how to experience revival in your life, a a spiritual movement in your life, it only comes through the word of God. It's not going to come because you listened to a wonderful Christian song. It's not going to come because you thought hard enough. It's not going to come because you want it to come uh, so much in your life. It's only going to come as you hear the Word of God. It sinks down into the deep recesses of your heart, and it begins to lift from your life and from your heart the things that are ungodly. And as you move closer to the Lord, you experience spiritual renewal. So as soon as this... As the building work came to an end, as we began here in chapter 8 last week, we saw that a very unusual event took place. And this event was to prove dramatically influential in the spiritual life of God's people. See, the work was finished during the late summer month of Elul. We found it in chapter 6, verse 15. The work was finished in 52 days, the wall was completed. And the next month, that month of Tishri, marked the beginning of the new year. And so the first day of this seventh month was a public holiday known as the Feast of Trumpets. So only a few days after the completion of this wall, now we have hundreds of men and women and children, perhaps even thousands of people, flocking to Jerusalem to observe this national holiday, this celebration of the Lord. And this outdoor public meeting was devoted entirely to the hearing of, of the reading and interpretation of Scripture. They arranged their lives in this event around the Word of God. So Ezra and Nehemiah's work here to reestablish faithfulness and to reestablish holiness among the Jews cultivated within the people of God a genuine desire for the Word of God. And this desire for God's Word opened them up to spiritual renewal. 
So I want us to examine this desire which led to renewal. Last Sunday, we, we, le- we learned that the experiencing this renewal first involves us valuing the Word of God. And we talked there about how the people were unified in the Word. They were attentive to the Word. They were responsive to the Word. They were submissive to the Word. They were open to the transformation of God in their lives that comes from the Word. And I hope this morning we've come with our hearts ready to understand and to hear and to respond with attentiveness to the Word of God because we value. But secondly, I want us to take another step and see here that this desire for renewal led to them applying God's Word. It led to them applying God's Word. Look there in verse 9. We're going to read through verse 12. Nehemiah says, or the, the book says, and Nehemiah, was, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. But this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. We find in these four verses God's people applying God's word to their lives. See here the people's response to the interpretation and the application of scripture at this huge outdoor meeting was evident and it was immediate. Sometimes when preachers stand to preach, we, not, not sometimes, all the time when we stand and preach the Word of God, we want immediate response. And it's not for us. We want immediate response in your life because you need to immediately and completely respond to the Word of God. And that's what's happening here. It was evident that the Word of God was piercing their hearts. Whenever God's Word is relevantly, or relevantly applied to our lives, the implications are far-reaching. And we find three applications or implications of applying God's word in this passage. First of all, I want you to see here that sin is exposed in you. That's the first implication of us applying the word of God to our lives. You see, the reason some of you don't read your Bible, or the reason some of you don't listen to the Bible as it's read, and the reason some of you who listen and read it but don't apply it is because you understand That when the word of God begins to get hold of you, what it does is it begins to squeeze the sin out of you. It begins to expose anything and everything that's not of God. And that's what's happening here. In verse 9 it says here that, that Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites began to tell the people that this day is holy to the Lord your God. And they tell them to not mourn and to not weep. Why were they mourning and why were they weeping? It's because the word of God had got a hold of them. The first sign that God was reaching the hearts and informing the minds of these people was the fact that they began to grieve about their failures. See, this unique book had touched their consciences. It was heightening their awareness of ways in which they had disobeyed, ways in which they had dishonored God, ways in which they had ignored of God. It began to expose sins of commission and sins of omission, things that they had committed and things that they hadn't even thought that they had sinned against. The Word of God began to speak to them. The Word of God began to to, to remind them and show them and reveal to them their sinfulness. 17th century preacher William Bridge, 
used a biblical illustration popular among reformers and Puritans of his day when he described the Bible as a looking glass. If you watch older movies, especially westerns, you'll hear that term, a looking glass. You say, what is a looking glass? It's a mirror. It's a piece of uh, of glass that you look in and you see yourself. And so he used this as an illustration of what the Word of God does. Using a mirror, we see three things. All of us probably looked in the mirror this morning. Hopefully you looked in the mirror this morning before you got out of bed, right? You got out of bed, you went in there and brushed your teeth, thank you for that. You, you looked at your hair, uh, some, of us, some of you who have hair, you looked at it and said, I need to fix this. Uh, ladies, you probably said, I need to put some makeup on. Guys, you probably said, I, I need to put some makeup on, but I'm not going to, that's not accepted. You looked in the mirror. What do you see when you look in the mirror? Bridge tells us we see three things. <clears throat> you see, we see the glass itself. We see the reflection of our own image and also that of the things around us that are in the room. He says, as we see the glass itself, we are reminded that Scripture is God's testimony to His own nation. He says, there's a God seen especially and Christ seen, but there also you see yourself. The Word of God reveals Jesus, but the Word of God also reveals our own self. He goes on to say that you see your own dirty face. There also you see the creatures that are in the room with you and their emptiness. You see, what the Word of God does for us, what William Bridge is telling us here, is that as you look at it, you see the Lord Jesus Christ and His holiness and His goodness and His glory, but you also see yourself contrasted against the holiness of God. And then you you see all the clutter that's in your life. All the things that shouldn't be in your life. And the word of God begins to remind you and point those things out to you. And it leads to a sense of brokenness and grieving and mourning. And for these people, weeping. Without the mirror, we would have no vision of ourselves. So the people here wept because what they heard, of what they heard in the reading of Scripture condemned their lifestyle. The word of God brought them face to face with the majesty and the justice of holy God. They saw themselves contrasted over and against it. The bright light of His holiness revealed their impurity. His faithfulness challenged their disloyalty. And His compassion condemned their selfishness. And so like Isaiah, if you remember in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5, when he saw the glory of God and the train of His robe filling the temple, he said this, I am un." done. I am a man of an unclean speech and I live amongst a people of unclean speech. The people of God here standing before Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites reading and interpreting the scripture as the word of God was exegeted before them they saw themselves as undone and lost people before the Lord of hosts. The exposing of sin as we think about this may seem harsh today. We may look at this and say, why would God ever do that? How is that loving and how is that kind and how is that gracious? It's nothing more than harshness and unkindness. How is that the gentleness of the Lord? And yet it is, in fact, the graciousness and the goodness of God to do so. You see, none of us want our sin. None of us want our failures and our shame brought to the surface. Instead, what we would rather do is we would rather bury them in the closet and then bury whatever we use to bury them. We want them to never come to the light. We want them to never see the light of day. God's word, however, always exposes our failures. His purpose is not to be mean. It's not to be vindictive. It's not necessarily to be punitive toward our sin or to us. Instead, it is to reveal our rebellion and the danger sin brings upon our lives. God wants us to have clean hearts before him. 
And you can't clean, have a clean heart unless you clean the heart. Some of us in our homes, we got some places in this church building that need a deep clean. How do you get a deep clean going? You go in there and you start throwing out the clutter. You start ripping it off the walls. You start cleaning out the nooks and crannies. You start polishing the floor. And then when all that's taken out and all of that's cleaned up, then you have a usable space. And that's what God's got to do to our lives. He's got to use his word to speak deep into the recesses of our sin-stained closets. And he's got to clean it up and polish it because only when it's clean can it be usable. And so he reveals our sin so that we will consciously see the heinousness of it and choose to walk away. He reveals our sin so that we can receive mercy and forgiveness. He reveals our sin so that we can be usable for him. Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Anybody want to prosper in your life? Anybody want your business to prosper, your Christian life to prosper? Uh, Any parent in here wants your graduates to prosper as they move into adulthood? How do we prosper? He says here that if we hold on to our transgressions, if we seek to conceal them, you will not prosper. But the one who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do we get cleansed from all unrighteousness? Confession of that sin. How do we know what sins to confess? The word of God sheds a light on them. So the Jews here felt the weight of their sin. It caused them to mourn and to weep. Scripture condemns our sin. But you know what it's also doing in that condemnation? It's providing the remedy. You see, read on in the texture what we've seen. They come and they say, don't weep. Don't mourn. Stop your, stop your crying. This is not a day to, to mourn and weep. This is a time to celebrate. This is a time to look to the Lord. It's the time to, to thank Him for what He's doing for us, what He's done for us. There is a time to mourn and weep, but it's not today. You see, what they're saying here is this. This is the Feast of Trumpets. This is a seven-day week celebration. And then on the back end of this comes the Day of Atonement. And so there's coming a day when the sins that you're feeling, the weight that's falling upon your shoulders because of that sin... It's going to be carried away through the atonement. The sins that we have are going to be placed upon that scapegoat. And that lamb's going to run off into the countryside, picturing what Jesus Christ is going to do for us. And so there was a time to celebrate here, even in their mourning, knowing that their sin was going to be forgiven. Scripture may expose our sin, but it never leaves us there. It always points us to Jesus. You see, that's why it's not punitive. That's why it's not harsh. That's why it's not mean or unkind. It's the gentleness of God that exposes our sin. It's the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God and the love of God that points out our sin, but then it points us to Jesus. It doesn't say, here's a sin, carry the weight, I hope you can make it. The Word of God says, here's the sin, carry it to Jesus. He's already paid the price for it. That's a very good place to say amen for the rest of you. So as we value the word of God, as we seek to apply it to our life, you just need to understand that it will expose your sin. God's purpose in this is to make you holy. So allow it to search your heart. Allow it to expose everything in your life. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is a double-edged sword that cuts to the joint and the marrow. It cuts deep into your heart. Sin exposes Sin is exposed in us. Second implication is this. As we apply the word of God, we see needs. Needs around us are revealed in others. 
Verse 10. Again, we see here, they said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, send portions to anyone who is nothing ready. See, Scripture here not only makes us aware of our own failures, it opens our eyes to the needs of others. Did you know that your Christian faith is not about you? Number one, it's about Jesus. Number two, it's about others. The great commandment tells us this, to love the Lord our God and to love others. And you love others as you love yourself. And so our Christian life is not about ourselves. Your Christian life is not about you. It's about Jesus and what Jesus wants to do in you and through you for other people. And so as we apply the word of God, it opens our eyes to the needs of others around us. The people here were not to indulge in groveling introspection. They weren't to just sit around saying, woe is me, I'm undone. Woe is me in my sin. No, they were to stand up in their lives. They were to walk in this assurance of forgiveness. They were to walk in this assurance of God's love. And it was a day of rejoicing. It was a time to celebrate God's mercy to them and his compassion for all people. The holiday was to be marked by festival meals to which families and communities gathered together. And the best food was to be sent to those people who lacked the basic necessities of life. Their understanding of the law here motivated them in their concern for the poor. It motivated them as they looked around and they saw the the, the widow and the fatherless, the orphan and the alien. And even as they looked around in this festival and they saw, you know what? There's some people that don't have the necessities needed to even celebrate. And so as you're you're preparing the meals and as you're getting ready to to celebrate the Feast of, of Trumpets, take some to those who don't have anything. Their salvation, in other words, was not to be a cul-de-sac of personal experience. It was not to be kept to themselves. It was not to be hoarded and and hugged and and held on to. No, the grace and the benevolence of God was not something they were to keep to themselves. It was meant to be an open road to loving service in a world where God wanted them to be his hands and feet. And Christian, I want you to know this morning... Your salvation in Jesus Christ is not a cul-de-sac of your own personal experience. I live on a cul-de-sac. You know what happens on a cul-de-sac? Nothing. And I love it that way. It's quiet. I live down a hill at the end of a cul-de-sac. I don't hear anything but owls and crows and squirrels. And they're building a house next to me. I hear that sometimes. It's quiet down there. There's nothing going on in a cul-de-sac experience. It's safe. Your Christian life was not meant to be that way. Your Christian life was meant to be a conduit through which God's grace and goodness flows through you to other people. And that was what the Jews were to be. They were to be the mouthpiece of the gospel to the nations. They were to be the light through whom the nations would be blessed. And you and I as followers of Jesus are to be the conduit through, the na- through whom the nations are blessed. Through whom your neighbors are blessed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if your eyes are never open to the needs of others, when you read the Bible, I want to say, say something to you this morning. There is something seriously wrong in your heart. If the Word of God never moves you to service, there's something wrong with your Christian walk. If you come on Sunday mornings and you just sit here and say, Pastor, bless me if you can. I'm going to put in my religious time. I'm going to check it off my list, and I'm going to go do what I normally do. But you're never moved for love for the Lord and love for other people. There's something wrong with your walk with Jesus. You may not have a walk with Jesus. And if you do, you're walking at a guilty distance. 
the people of God, as they applied the word of God, saw that their sins were being exposed. It moved them to see the needs of others around them. And then third implication we find here was that God provided the resources for them. There are resources given to us by the Lord. Verse 10. It says, latter part of this verse, And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. Here we see that the word of God assured these Jews of the Lord's help through three immense resources, that of peace, joy, and strength. Verse 11, we see the people were urged to calm their distressed minds. It's kind of interesting that, that in the midst of this distressed situation, as people are weeping and mourning, the, the Levites and Ezra and Nehemiah come and say, be quiet. Be, be, in other words, another translation would be this, be still, calm down, chill out a little bit, rest in the Lord, look up to the Lord Jesus Christ, be quiet. You see, however great their sins the people could be completely forgiven and be at peace in their hearts. That's what they're saying here, is that understand the weightiness of your sin, but don't ever, don't ever look at the weightiness of your sin outside of the graciousness of God. We sang it this morning. Our sins are great, but His grace is greater. So we need to feel the weight of our sin as it's exposed, but never think as a Christian that your sin is to be carried in yourself. No, we have peace with God, not because we've done good things, but because Jesus has done the good thing. Romans 5, 1, Paul said, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Since we've been justified through faith, what does that mean? That means that we, by faith, believe in Jesus, that he is God, that he came to live a holy, perfect life, to die as a holy, perfect sacrifice in your place and in my place, so that when God the Father looks down at our sinfulness, as we've placed our faith, as we have faith in him, he doesn't see our sin, he sees the greatness and the goodness and the righteousness of the Son of God, and he passes over us. In other words, we've been made, uh, we've been brought into peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. While we're in our sin, we were at war, but now through Christ we, are, we have been forgiven. We have peace with God. Therefore, we have peace in our hearts about all matters of life, knowing that God is on our side and he's working on our behalf. And so the peace of God leads us and brings to us joy. Joy is not found in ideal circumstances. Joy is not found in material prosperity. Joy is not found in social popularity. Joy is not found in anything this world has to offer. Do you know you can have absolutely nothing and have joy in your heart? You can sit in a Roman prison and write a letter to a church knowing that you've been persecuted for your faith for decades, that you've given your life to the mission of Christ, and yet it's brought nothing to you but shipwreck, heartache, uh, famine, uh, destitute living, uh, punishment, beatings, floggings, and jail time. And yet you can say, rejoice always. Again, I say, rejoice. That's the Apostle Paul. Joy comes from the peace of God in our lives. Joy is found exclusively in the Lord. So just like these Jews, Paul here understood this truth. His letter to the Philippians that I just referenced reveals how he rejoiced in the Lord and what the Lord was doing through his life and the church despite his circumstances. 
So Christian, this morning, our joy is derived from the knowledge of who God is. It's derived in the knowledge of what God has done and continues to do, what he says over us and what he gives us. Our knowledge comes as we value and apply his word in our lives. And that leads to the joy of the Lord becoming our strength. It's the source of constantly renewed strength. The guarantee of such comprehensive resources fortified the lives of these Jews and it provided the dynamic for daily living. You see, they could rejoice in the Lord knowing that he was going to provide for them, that he was their strength. Remember all that's been going on in the first seven chapters of this book. They've had enemy after enemy after enemy. Tobias, Sanballat, and Geshem, and all the others have done everything they can to stop the work. And yet, what has happened? It continued to progress. God continued to provide. God continued to provide protection, provision, everything that was needed. He gave them peace, even when they were scrambling and wondering, how do I feed my family? How do I take care of my family? How do I, how, how do I defend the city? God always provided. He is our strength. And the word strength here speaks of a fortress or a well-protected stronghold. So when we think about the Lord, we need to remember He is our strength in salvation. He alone is the one who calls us to Himself. He alone is the one who supplies us with His power. He alone is the one who gives us His presence to live for Him. See, the Lord is the one who strengthens us to see the needs in others. He's the one who gives us the resources to meet those needs. He's the one who gives us the resources when we feel the weightiness of our sins. We look to the cross, we see the blood, and we see there the resources to deal with our sin. It's the Lord who defends us against the attacks from the enemy. As we rejoice in the Lord, we're encouraged to stand firm knowing He is our fortress. A strong help in times of trouble, Psalm says. That's the God who loves us. That's the God who speaks. And this morning I want you to know... God has indeed spoken. Where would we be today, this morning, if God had not spoken? Where would you be if God had kept silent? We would not be here if God had not spoken. He's the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be uh, land, and there was land. Let the waters separate from the land, and we have what we have today of oceans and continents, and God created all that. He's the one who called vegetation to, to sprout. He's the one who spoke into existence animal life and humanity. He's the one who has spoken even in creation. And then Jesus came to deal with our sin, and there upon the cross, as we've sung this morning, Jesus uttered some words that give us the life that we so desperately need. He said, Tetelestai, it is finished. You see, we can have peace with God today. We can have the presence of God in our lives, not because of a good religious activity. We can have it because God did what was necessary on our behalf. And as he hung there on the cross and his blood was being drained from his body, he looked out over the crowd there before him and he looked past in eternity past and in future past or future eternity and he saw all of our sinfulness and he uttered the phrase, it is finished. And today we can have peace with God. We can have a heart that seeks to serve Him and to serve others. A heart that seeks to walk with Him in fellowship and, 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 and just complete community because of what Jesus Christ has spoken over us. God has spoken and He's spoken most clearly through Jesus. This morning, 
wherever you're at spiritually, I pray that you value the Word of God. And that in your heart, you're attentive to it. That you're responsive to it. That you submit yourself. That you're open to His activities. He leads you and grows you and challenges you and sometimes stretches you. And I hope not only do you value it, but you apply. You see, you really only value the Word of God when you're applying it to your life. Outside of that, it's just like every other book. It's like, ah, that's good. Good to know. Not really going to make any difference in my life. But as you apply it to your life, you know what happens? It transforms you. Your sin is exposed. God grows you so that you see the needs of others and you want to serve Him and you want to serve other people. And all the while, you're understanding He's the one, the fuel behind it. And He gives you everything you need to bring glory to God and to bring goodness to other people. So this morning, as we move into a time of response, whatever the Lord's spoken to your life, maybe it's, man, I need a relationship with Jesus. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a spiritual person, I'm a religious person, but I just don't have a walk with Jesus. Perhaps that's what God's been revealing to your heart. Or maybe as a Christian you're saying, I, I don't walk with him as closely as I ought to. I'm, I, I'm really, maybe like Pastor was saying, I'm walking at a guilty distance. This morning, he wants you to walk close with him, close and clean. So what do you need to do to walk close and clean? There's probably some sin you need to confess. Probably some sin that you need to deal with before the Lord. And so you can stand there in the, in the pew and, and do business with the Lord. You can come up here and just make this an altar yourself. Whatever the Lord is, maybe you need to come and pray for others that, that are God's placed upon your heart, that they need to walk with the Lord or some burden in your heart. But let's just be responsive and open to the Lord's activity in our hearts and in response to his word. Can we do that this morning? Let's stand to our feet.